Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We're actually going to start off by reading 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50 through verse 58. Would you stand with me as I read God's word? 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is our text for this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 says, God's word reads, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. And we shall be changed. Sorry. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You may be seated. Well, his purpose in life was to avoid death. According to the dailymail.com, that is what tech billionaire Brian Johnson is now living for. Brian Johnson lives in California. And this article says that he is living each day with the hope that he can avoid death. He's 45 years old. Depression during 2020 and fear of death led him to live a strict, regimented life. It's estimated that he spends over $2 million a year to de-age. He takes 111 pills a day. He only eats vegetables, mostly drinks like his favorite giant green smoothie made of Broccoli, cauliflower, and garlic. His day is filled with exercise, plasma infusions, doing constant internal scans. He's now up to 33,537 scans. That includes MRIs, ultrasounds, colonoscopies. I don't know how many of you want to do of those, but blood tests. And this is the, art, the article quotes him as saying this, I am 
revolting against the culture of death. And his mission is to reverse the aging process. Well, I have unfortunate news for him. It's not going to work. There will be a day when Brian Johnson, as well as all of us, will die. Unless you're in Christ and you are there for the resurrection day, everyone will have a day when they die. Brian Johnson spends his days, he spends millions of dollars motivated by this single purpose. He wants to avoid death. But in the end, his labor on earth will be in vain. It'll be pointless. In our scripture here, we see at the very end of chapter 15 that God says that the labor for the Christian is not in vain. There's a point that the word vain means to have no point. It means that you put all this work into it and you get nothing out of it. It's like someone who builds a building and puts millions of dollars into a building and all the labor and the work, they build it and they realize they have to tear it down because it's structurally not sound or for another reason. And all that work, all that money was in vain. For the Christian, we work for Christ. We live every day for that hope, for that day that we will see Christ. And when we see him, we will realize our labor for him on this earth had a point. It had a reason. It was not in vain. So this text of scripture here is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that we are to labor for the Lord now, knowing there is a resurrection to come. And really, this is a continuation of last week's sermon that started in verse 35. And so verse 35 down through verse 57 really is a continual thought of this hope for resurrection. And then verse 58 concludes with that we should be immovable. We should be abounding in the work of the Lord and steadfast, knowing this, based upon this knowledge, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So the point is, the reality of future resurrection means that your work for Christ is not in vain. And so, so what knowledge should motivate us to work for the Lord now? What, what knowledge should mo motivate us to labor for the Lord every day? Well, he gives that knowledge to us in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's the knowledge that there's going to be a day when Christ will appear, we will be with him, and he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, and we will live with him for eternity. That's the motivation. And so we're going to look at two motivations this morning. Knowledge that motivates us to labor for the Lord. And the first one is know this, that Christ will come soon, and you will be transformed. Christ will come soon, and you will be transformed. Notice verse number 42 down through verse 49. This is what we talked about last week. And notice the description of this resurrection body that we will receive. In essence, he says in these verses that you're going to receive a resurrection body like Jesus Christ. Verse 42, it's going to be imperishable. In other words, it's never going to die. Verse 43, it's going to be glorious. In Matthew 13, 43, Jesus said that the righteous 
will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So your, your body will have these, these glorious attributes to it. There will be a magnificence to your body, body that I don't even think today that we could really fathom what that would be like. Verse 43, our bodies will be powerful. Verse 44, our bodies will be spiritual, which means our bodies will be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak and desire and to do the will of God in absolute purity and holiness. There'll never be a time where we think or we say or we do something outside of God's will because our bodies will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That transformation of our bodies is guaranteed by God and it's necessary in order for us to dwell with God. And you can see that in verse 50. Verse 50 reads, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood refers to the body that we have now. Our bodies are temporal. They are deteriorating. Like our bodies have the curse of sin. We... Uh, this morning, are praying for Donna McWhorter. Donna fell, uh, I think it was Friday, and she fractured her pelvis. And so be, be praying for her. But when you hear things like that, we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through something like that. But it's also a reminder that this body is only temporary. Like, we should take care of it. God wants us to take care of our bodies. We should do that. But this body someday will die. We won't have it anymore. And what he's saying in this verse here, that it's necessary for us to actually get a new body in order for us to be able to dwell in the presence of God forever. The kingdom of God there in verse 50 is speaking about the future eternal reign of God in that country, in that city, whose builder and maker is God. So the kingdom of God is referring to the eternal kingdom where the redeemed will dwell with God forever. And you cannot dwell with God forever in the body that you have right now. You have a sin-cursed body. See, the reason why we can this morning, we can praise the Lord and we can pray and trust and believe that, that the Lord hears our prayers and he's pleased with our prayers is because we believe that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has resurrected our souls. So we can fellowship with the Lord now. We can enjoy the Lord now because our souls have been resurrected to life. We call that regeneration. It's being born again. Our souls have been made right with the Lord. And the only way that we can enjoy fellowship with God and enjoy God in his presence, in his kingdom, is if he resurrects our bodies to new life. So that's what this verse is teaching. It's necessary for us to have a bodily resurrection so that we can actually be in the presence of God. Why would our bodies not be able to be in the presence of God? Well, because we have sin-cursed bodies. And God is a God who is holy, holy, holy. Because God's glory is so pure. God's glory is so holy. Our sin-cursed bodies would burn up like a feather on the surface of the sun. In the Old Testament, we see examples of the glory of God radiating forth in individuals, sinners, 
not being able to stand before the glory of the Lord. Probably the best example is Isaiah. When he stands in that holy temple and the glory of God, really even just the train of God's glory, just a part of a glimpse of the glory of God causes him to fall on his face and cry out. God allowed Moses to see a glimpse of his glory on Mount Sinai. And God said that if he was able to expose his glory to to Moses, that Moses wouldn't exist anymore. That's how dangerous the holiness of God is to a sinner. In Numbers chapter 16, you can read of an account there where there's 250 leaders in Israel, and they step up and they resist and reject God's leader, Moses. And so therefore, God decides he's going to judge these 250 leaders Numbers chapter 16, verse 19 says, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. So imagine the tabernacle in the middle of the congregation. Imagine all these hundreds of thousands of people around this, and they're watching the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord appears above the tabernacle and in front of the whole nation. Numbers chapter 16, verse 35 records that God's glory caused this. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men. Now, why is that? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? Because God's glory is so pure and so wonderful that when it encounters those who aren't pure and holy, that it consumes them. So it's only by the grace of God that we're not consumed by the glory of God. And the only way that we can have fellowship with the holy God in our souls is if God resurrects our souls. And he did that through Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus is the holy God who came down and lived a holy life. He died on the cross. He rose again. The purpose of his death was to take the punishment for our sin, to conquer sin and conquer death. And the purpose of his resurrection was to prove that he got the victory. And and he was resurrected and ascended into heaven. He resurrects our souls when we believe in him. And the scripture is teaching here that in order for us to live with him For eternity, with the holy God forever, we must have our bodies also resurrected. And those who have resurrected souls are guaranteed to have resurrected bodies. The resurrection of our bodies is called glorification. God will glorify our bodies. So so look at verse 50. He says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable, that which dies, Inherit the imperishable, that which lives forever. And so when is this coming, this change? Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The verb sleep is a metaphor for believers who have died. So the scripture is teaching here that not all believers will die. Notice that in verse 51. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. So there's going to be a generation of believers who don't die. They're caught up in the air with the Lord, and they're transformed. They're changed. In fact, actually, this idea of being caught up in the air with the Lord is where we get the word rapture. We're caught up. We're raptured to the Lord. We're changed. So verse 51, he's telling us a mystery that is a truth that was hidden from the Old Testament saints, but now is revealed to us. So here's the mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
This, this is happening so fast that you don't even have time to think. It's faster than a blink. It's the twinkle of an eye. It's a flashing moment. It's suddenly. One moment you're doing something, and the next moment you're with the Lord. You're brushing your teeth. You're working at your desk. You're walking down the street, and suddenly it happens. You don't see it coming. The trumpet sounds, and we are with the Lord. Can you think of a time when something happened so quickly, it was, it was shocking, and it changed your life? Maybe you received a phone call. Maybe you heard some terrible news. Maybe you're driving down the road, and this is one that's probably the best example, and you're not expecting anything to happen to you that day, and someone sideswipes you. You know, it's shocking. You didn't see it happening. You didn't see it coming. It's like, where did that come? And it, change, it can change your life. And, and that's what's going to happen in this. It's going to be so shocking. You're not going to see it coming. But actually, it changes our life for the best. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. This last trumpet is the heavenly trumpet that will announce that the church age is over. It's the last trumpet of the church age. It announces that Christ is coming. And we, verse 52 says, shall be changed. We as the church shall be changed. Now, I'm not going to dive super deeply into eschatology this morning, but I do want to point out that, that this, this coming of the Lord is really the first stage of the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ starts with Christ coming for his church. The scripture teaches that there's seven years that pass. And then finally, Christ will come with his church. And this is the final, that is, that is the final coming of Christ when he comes actually to the earth and he rules and reigns for a thousand years on earth. So there's a coming with his church and when he comes, I'm sure, I'm sorry, first there's a coming for his church. When he comes for his church, we will be raptured into the air. We will be changed. And then we will go and have the marriage supper of the Lamb, which really all marriages on this earth should point to that marriage, that union that we have with Jesus Christ. And then there will be a coming back with his church. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking of that coming for his church where he resurrects our bodies to life. In fact, you can see this back in verse 23. Verse 23 tells us about this time that Jesus will come for his church. Notice verse 23, but each in his own order. So remember, this is speaking about the resurrection orders, the order of resurrection, I should say. Christ, the first fruits. So notice Jesus was the first one to be resurrected. So the imagery here is, God harvesting people, the, the right for resurrection. So God first picks Jesus, if you want to say that one. He, he resurrects him to life. The next fruits to be right for resurrection are those at the coming of Christ. So at verse 23, and then at his, that's Jesus coming, those who belong to Christ. So like any harvest, there are different fruit, there are fruits that are ripe at different times. When we were in South Carolina, our kids and our family would go to um, pick strawberries. 
And so when you go there, you tell the kids that there's certain ones you are to pick and certain ones you're not to pick. And you know you failed as a parent when you come back and half of them are green, you know? And then the point is what we recognize with our children, we're like, you know, some of them are ready to be picked and some we should wait until they're riper. And that's the picture here is that there's some that are ready to be picked. Christ was already picked. He was resurrected. And then, then there's actually even within the resurrections of of the saints, there's actually different stages to it. There's different times when there's different times where Christ will resurrect souls. And so there's this time uh, before his actual second coming where he comes for his church and resurrects saints, resurrects the church. And then at the end of those seven years, Christ will come back with his church and harvest other souls. So 1 Corinthians 15 is teaching us the reality that the Lord of the harvest is coming back at any moment. This is what the scripture teaches. And we must be ready. I read a story that I could not verify if it's actually true or not. But it's a funny story. So if it's true, it's really funny. If it's not true, it's still funny, okay? But this is the story I read about a guy named Herbert Washington from Austin, Texas. He was a constant pranker. So he would prank his coworkers and, you know, they didn't really like it very much. So they thought they were going to get back at him one day. And Herbert was a Christian, and most of his uh, co-workers claimed to be Christians. So they decided one day that when he was in his office, they were going to go around the office, and they were going to set it up like the rapture had happened. And, uh, and they were going to hide in a closet. And then they had a co-worker who was Muslim, and they thought they would co-opt him into this. And so when Herbert was in his office and he was working, they did this whole setup. And his, the Muslim worker came in and started screaming and saying, oh, everyone's disappeared, you know. So Herbert ran out. So this is how the story goes. Herbert ran out and he grabbed his heart and he began to have a heart attack. And he actually cried out, I knew you would forget me, Jesus. <laughs> well, his coworkers realized this was a problem. And so they came out and first they were kind of laughing and then they were like, this is for real. So they took him to the hospital, and Herbert ended up being okay. didn't die of a heart attack. But one of the co-workers said that Herbert, quote, Herbert could be seen digging into his Bible like never before. So Herbert was living, at least after that whole event, in the reality of the return of Christ. But the idea of this passage is that we should expect Christ to return at any moment. Verse 51, notice verse 51. Paul has this expectation. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And what's interesting about the apostle Paul is that when he writes about this coming of Christ to resurrect his church, he speaks as if he's going to be one that's alive at the time. In other words, Paul expected that Christ would come back in his lifetime. Would you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Thessalonians 4? And I want to show you this in another passage. It's maybe even a little bit more clear that Paul viewed himself as one who would be a part of those who were still alive and who would be resurrected in glory. This is important to recognize because this helps us to realize that even Paul believed in the imminent, the immediate return of Christ in his lifetime, that we should expect that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, notice verse 14. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 4, notice verse 14. The scripture says Paul is comforting the church here. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, those Christians who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, so notice Paul says we, including himself, who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will, be, will rise first. Then we, notice Paul, this is Paul speaking about himself, we who are alive. So he expected to be alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the point is, nobody knows when Christ will come back. Paul the Apostle didn't know. And isn't it so ridiculous that you have these people that predict when Christ is coming back? I mean, there are people that are like, oh, it's all lining up, like he's coming back this year. Well, you know what? Paul the Apostle thought he was coming back that year. And that's good, because God's word says we should expect him to come back at any time. You know, when you hear people that are like, it's all lining up like this, and so we can, we can time it like this. Literally, Jesus says we don't know the day or the hour, okay? And actually, we should not just expect it to come, you know, in November, because that's, you know, when the, some of the elections are coming next year, so obviously it's going to happen at that point, you know? We should actually expect that it could actually happen today. So the knowledge that motivates us to work for the Lord now is that Christ will soon come and soon he will transform us. And Jesus told parables to help us to understand this, to illustrate this for us. One parable he told was in Luke chapter 12. And the parable goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was a boss who went away to a party. And he left his servants at his house. And these servants were guarding the home. They were taking care of the home. And the boss said he'd be back. So they prepared the house. They were ready for him. And it was 9 o'clock and the boss didn't come back home. And then it was 11 o'clock and he still wasn't home. And the, they, the servants looked at each other and thought, well, maybe we should go home. Or maybe we should play cards. And they said, no, no, we're going we're gonna to be ready. We're going to keep the house ready. We're going to keep doing our jobs. Then it was midnight. Then it was 1 o'clock. Then it was 3 o'clock. And Where's our boss at? I mean, maybe he's not coming back. But then suddenly he arrives and he walks in the door and he sees them all working. They were ready and he richly rewards them. And this is what Christ tells us is, is a picture of his coming, his return. We are the servants. We are to be ready. And when he comes, he will richly reward us. That's why he says in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, to end that story, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And this is constantly in the letters of the Apostle Paul, also in James and in 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Philippians 4, 5 says, be considerate of one another. Why should you be considerate of one another? Like, why should you, after church today, why should you connect with each other, relate with each other, love each other, have relate? Why should you do that? Well, he says, Philippians 4, 5, be considerate of one another. The Lord is at hand because God's coming back soon. Like, love your brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus is coming back. How about James chapter 5, verse 7? Be patient, brothers, 
as you wait for the coming of the Lord. Like endure, be patient. Why? Because he's coming back. Verse 8 of James 5 says, the Lord is at hand. His return could happen at any moment. So with this in mind, we need to ask ourselves, how are we laboring for the Lord? Or let me just directly address you and ask you, how are you laboring for the Lord? Like, let that, let that settle in. Think about that. Like, actually, see if you can have things come to your mind. How are you laboring for the Lord? Are you working for the Lord like, like he might come at 3 o'clock this afternoon? And if you were able to know, and you can't, and let's not try to, but if you were able to know that he was coming back a week from now, like he's going to come back not this Sunday, but next Sunday at 3 o'clock, how would that change what you do this week? Think about that. Would there be a sin that you would repent of this week? You're like, okay, he's coming back. I got to repent of this sin now. Would there be a broken relationship that you were like, I got to reconcile that relationship? Would you read your Bible more this week? I mean, would you read more about heaven? Would you, would you pray more this week? Would you talk to someone that needs the gospel this week? And I think if the answer to those questions or one of those questions is, I think I would do something different this week if I knew he was coming back next week you know what? I think God wants you to do something this week because he might come back this week. We don't know the day or the hour. And so what motivates us to labor for the Lord now is that Christ will come soon and you'll be transformed. And then second, to know that you are on the victor's side. Know that Jesus is the victor and we are on his side. Look at verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, the Im- puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When will we see the final proof of Christ's victory? Well, this text of scripture is saying You will see the final proof of his victory when you are transformed to be like Jesus Christ. When you have a bodily resurrection, when you receive glorification. You see, Jesus Christ is the victor. He doesn't become the victor. He already is. He already won the victory. When did he win the victory? When did he win the victory? When was it? On the cross. That's right. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says that God has forgiven us, those in Christ, of our trespasses. Can I tell you, friends, right there, that's victory. Like, he doesn't hold your sin against you. Your sins no longer bind your soul and are going to drag you to hell. No, he's cut the cords. He's released you from prison. Even, Even better than that, he's adopted you as his child. He promises to forever love you. Isn't that amazing? That's victory right there. And how did he win that victory? Colossians 2 verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he, that's God, set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took your sin. He took the punishment for your sin and he nailed it to the cross, literally nailed it to Jesus. He took the punishment for us. And on that cross, the scripture says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by 
triumphing over them in him. That's in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated Satan on that cross. And his resurrection proved it. And so the way God applies that work, that victory to us is through salvation. Like we said earlier, it's him resurrecting our soul to life. And what was that word we, we talked about that talks about resurrection of our, the resurrection of our soul? It's regeneration, right? And there will be a day when he will resurrect our bodies. And that word is called glorification. So he has raised our soul to life. He will raise our body to life. In death, we can say at that moment, we can show and put on display, death is swallowed up in victory. Look at verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, many people are afraid of death. Right? Right? The individual we talked about earlier, he's doing all these things, spending all this money. He wants to avoid death. And there are many Christians, unfortunately, that are afraid to die. What the scripture is saying is that Death doesn't have the victory. There's no sting with death. Yes, death may overtake you. But ultimately, the sting of death, which is sin, will not overpower you, will not drag your soul to hell to be separated from God. Notice that in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. God's law tells us how we are to love God, And how we are to love other people. But we have sinned against God. We've broken his laws. We don't love God like we should. We haven't loved people like God has called us to. That's called sin. Sin condemns us to hell. Sin condemns us to eternal separation from God. But Jesus Christ, he hung on the cross and he defeated sin. And he took upon him the judgment of death and even eternal death upon himself. And then he rose again. He defeated it. And so Christ defanged death. So death doesn't have the sting that separates us from God. Yes, you may die, but your soul will not go to hell. Your soul will go to heaven with the Lord if you are in Christ. And so that's what he says in verse 57. If this is you, if you're one in Christ and you're thinking like, I don't want to die or I'm afraid of this day I'm going to die, look at verse 57 and use this as your verse. Because the scripture says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you you realize that's present tense right there? He gives us now the victory. Yes, he won the victory, but he's still the one who gives us victory. We don't gain the victory over sin through our own effort, through our own self-denial. It's not up to your self-determination. You can't defeat sin in your own strength. You can't be good enough to please God. Your pride, your efforts cannot earn you anything in God's eyes. Sin will defeat you every time. The only way that you can have true victory over sin is through Jesus Christ. He is the victor. And so what's our role? What's our role? We trust the one who is the victor. We're on the victor's side. Jesus Christ has gained the victory. He gives the victory. So what knowledge should motivate us as we labor for the Lord? Know that we're on the victor's side. Like we're not, we're not in a perpetual 
position of defeat. Oh, no, we're in a place where Christ is the one who's within us and greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, speaking of Satan. And so what does this knowledge motivate us to do? We'll look at verse 57. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. The word steadfast means you're settled. You're you're staying in place. You're not going to be moved. That you're going to keep serving the Lord no matter what blows against you, no matter what trial comes your way, no no matter what people are saying to you, that you're going to be steadfast, immovable. You're going to keep working for Christ. It means you're, you're in that school and you have those kids who make fun of you, the students who look down on you. You have the teacher who, who speaks of you in a certain way because you have certain views that, disagree, that he disagrees with. And, and you're not going to be moved by that. You're going to continue to love those people. You're going to continue to shine for Jesus Christ. You're going to have your feet planted to the gospel. It's going to be anchored down by the truth that there's going to be a day when you meet Jesus and Jesus matters more than what anyone else thinks around you. It's being steadfast, immovable. This text is for those who are going through deep trials. And the winds of that trial blow against you and you feel like giving up. This text is for those who have a relationship with someone and it's not reconciled. And you know you should reconcile that person and there's something you should do and you can do, but you don't really want to do. And so this text is saying, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, pursue that person. This text is for those who really don't want to put the time in to disciple someone. You're like, ah, I'm so tired. I don't have time for that. And he's saying, listen, be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. I think probably one of the greatest threats to our serving the Lord is depression, right? It's that idea that we have these thoughts in our head and they swirl around and we can just start descending into despair. God is not at the center of our thoughts. God is not filling our thoughts. It's ourselves. It's woe is me. It's what's happening in my life. And that despair can drag us down and really pull us away from serving Christ. Martin Luther, the German reformer, was tempted by this. And, And probably he had one of the worst trials that anyone could ever go through that tempted him with depression and to really give up. And that was that his little girl, his daughter, was dying of an illness. His heart was wrapped up in this little girl. He loved her. And if you've had a child that has passed away, you know what Martin Luther was going through in his wife. And they would go into her room and they would pray for her and they would hug her and they would love her. But But at some point, they realize that she is not going to make it. So Martin Luther is recorded as saying to his little girl this. He knelt down to her, and he touched her hair and her face. And he said, would you like to stay with your father here? Or would you like to be with your father in heaven? Now, that's a difficult question to ask a little girl that knows she's going to pass away. God gave her the grace to say this, dearest father, I want whatever God wills. And then she passed. 
at their little girl's funeral, as her little coffin was being lowered down into the earth, Luther said this, my darling, you will rise and you will shine like the stars and like the sun. He was speaking of her resurrection. But that didn't solve his problems, right? He, he thought about his little girl on a constant basis and him and his wife, Katie, they just felt like giving up. I mean, they remembered her laughs and they remembered her joy that she brought to the home. And so he wrote this to a friend as he was considering just how this was affecting his ministry and his life and his relationships. And he wrote this, my wife and I cannot think of her, that's their daughter, without sobs and without groans, which tear the heart apart. The memory of her face, her words, her expressions in life and death, everything about our most obedient and loving daughter lingers in our hearts. And so he says, would you give thanks to God in our stead for hasn't he honored us greatly in glorifying our child? He's saying, I, I'm trusting that God actually has a purpose in this and actually there will be, a day, will be a day when I will meet my daughter and she will be glorified. Just pray for us in this. This was a constant struggle in his life. But what you see what's happening with Martin Luther, what he kept doing is he kept going back to that day when his little girl is going to be resurrected and he's not going to recognize her as his little girl, right? I mean, she'll look like her, but she'll be a grown and she'll be a glorified saint and he'll see her. And he keeps putting his mind back to that. And that's what the scripture is telling us. Like, be steadfast, be immovable, abound in the work of the Lord. I mean, when you feel like you're being pulled down, look up to the Lord and realize he's coming back soon. And that day of glory is the day that we're living for. Verse 58 is, I think, the verse that we should pray when we pray for our missionaries. I mean, think about like Brett and Jennifer Wright. They're in Africa with little kids. He's flying planes on a constant basis, and he's honestly, his life's in danger. He's going into dangerous places. We should pray for them. We think about Jonathan and Sarah this summer. We're praying for them in, in a foreign country, in a third world country. They have a, a son that's Down syndrome. A daughter has half a heart. They're going on, they're going on these boats all the time. Like, and they're boats. They're like rickety boats, boats that I'm like, should you really be in that boat? <laughs> but they are, and they're doing it for the gospel. And we should pray this verse for the, our missionaries. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I think we should pray for our missionaries in this, and then we should pray for ourselves, because we shouldn't expect our missionaries to sacrifice their lives for the gospel and pray for them in that regard if we're not doing the same thing. I've heard people that comment about missionaries be like, well, that's their job. Their job is to sacrifice for the gospel. What? No, I, there's not like someone who's hired for ministry and they're the ones in ministry and nobody is. Like, we're all in ministry. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 was written for the church, not for pastors, not for missionaries, all of us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And so we should pray this verse for ourselves and for our church. What does the work of the Lord include? It includes using your gifts in a local church like this. We are the body of Christ. We are the hands. We are the feet of Christ. We should love one another. That's the work of the Lord. It includes our role in the home. Children, do you realize that you're in the home this week and God wants you to get to work 
So what is, children, what is your work this week in the home? What, when you go to school, what's your work for the Lord there? Like, think about that. Think about what God has called you to do. And, and when you honor your parents, and when you love your siblings, and when you work hard in school, and you do it for the Lord, do you realize you're working for the Lord? And that lasts for eternity. The work of the Lord includes our gospel witness. It includes the ways we support the gospel. Actually, if you look in chapter 16, he goes right into giving. Do you realize that chapter 16 is an application of chapter 15? If you are a person who li really, literally lives for eternity, then you will be a person who obeys chapter 16. You will be a person who gives. And notice he says you're always abounding. This means that you don't turn Christian Christianity on at 1030 on Sunday mornings. It's 24-7 and you're abounding. This is overflowing. This is in excess that means, that means our lives should actually have the quality that, that we are serving God at all times. And you're saying, well, Pastor Ben, we need breaks at times. And you're right. We need to rest. But not rest to quit. We need rest so that we can continue on, right? That's the biblical view of rest. I mean, you have one day out of the week where you set it aside for the Lord. It's the day of rest. This is the day of the Lord. So we rest today. And it's not about taking naps and things like that. It's about saying this day is set aside for the Lord, but we do that so we can work for the Lord the rest of the week too, right? And so we are to serve the Lord in abundance. And so let me end by asking, how are you working for the Lord? I mean, what, what, think about your afternoon. What are you going to do this afternoon that's for the Lord? Or this week, and maybe another follow-up question to that is, what more can you do for the Lord? Like, if you're to be abounding, then what's, what's the next thing you can do for him? I mean, how can you serve him more? How can you serve him more in your home, in your school? And the last question, I think is an important one when we talk about this text, and that is, are you ready to give up? Right? Then sometimes you just feel like giving up. Like, I just don't want to be around people anymore. Like, I'm, 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 I'm sick of, like, really, life is hard. It's difficult. I just want to escape and get away. And this verse is for you. That you should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Why shouldn't you just give up? Why should we just go you know, live our lives in comfort and just say, we're not going we'll to, we'll just wait till it all ends. Well, verse 58 gives the why. Look at verse 58. The last clause says, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Knowing that there's a purpose, that when you see Christ, it will be worth it all. Your labor on this earth will be worth it. Well, people don't see me. Well, it's very difficult. You know what? The Lord knows. He sees you. And someday when you see him, he will give you glorified eyes to see him and a glorified body so you can praise him. And he will recognize that you served him and he will reward you. Let me end with one last 
illustration. In 1952, there was a young lady named Florence Chadwick who actually went over to England and she swam the English Channel both ways, which is pretty incredible. Then she came to California here and she went to Catalina Island. Some of you have been to Catalina Island. And she decided that she was going to swim from Catalina Island to California. And so she got in, a, in the water and her mom was in a boat and some other people and there were some reporters and stuff in there. And she swam for 15 hours and she was getting really tired, obviously. And at some point there at the end, she just couldn't do it anymore. It was foggy. You know, we all know the California fog that rolls in, right? It was foggy. She just couldn't see the shoreline and stuff. And, and so she, she stopped in the water and was, you know, treading water. She turned to her mom and said, I just, I got to quit. I'm done. And her mom says, no, no, just a little farther. Just a little farther. She's like, oh, I just can't. I can't, can't, I can't do it. Well, she got in the boat. She didn't finish it. The next day, she had a news conference. And she didn't realize that she was less than half a mile from shore. And she said, if I could have just seen how far it was, I would have finished. If I could have just seen through the fog, I could have finished. And what, what's happening in this text of scripture here is God saying, listen, this is what's through the fog. This is what's through the fog of your trials and of your tiredness and of your difficulties. And it's Jesus. And, and if you could just see that, oh, how that would motivate you to keep serving the Lord. Let's pray.